Hello and welcome to the Worcester Observer podcast. I'm your host, Rob George, and I'm delighted to say joining me this week, Stephen Kearney, the candidate for the Liberal Democrats. I say prospective parliamentary candidate, but with the election getting on our necks closer and closer, you'll soon be the parliamentary candidate. Yeah, well, thanks for welcoming me here. I'm I'm definitely the parliamentary candidate for the city of Worcester, yeah. But we'll lose perspective soon and we'll be in election period, so we're going to cram this podcast in before an election is called. So I thought I'd start, Stephen, by asking you, how did we get to this point? How did you become the parliamentary candidate for Worcester? Uh, Well, interesting story. I was involved uh, for many years in, in agriculture, and I ended up involved in uh, rural community development and I was one of the founders of a charity uh, that was designed to um, listen to people's views in their communities, identify their concerns and their aspirations um, and then develop um, small businesses to tackle uh, the big community concerns. So I guess, you know, I was at the beginning of the, the whole social enterprise movement and um, I was very involved with uh, founding things like Unlimited. This was the £126 million endowment uh, fund that was, is, is now used on a regular basis to fund social entrepreneurs. So uh, I was very proud of that. And um, I got involved um, as well in youth development work. So uh, I was one of the founders of the UK Youth Parliament. So it was interesting to kind of have that experience from an agricultural base, um, but also to to have um, a lot of business experience. It was quite interesting to bring that together. Um, and I found that uh, really the, the Labour Party at the time, um, Tony Blair had taken us to war with Iraq, so I was a bit disillusioned about that. Uh, the Conservative Party, in my view, uh, had no balance whatsoever. They were just totally um, business-orientated. And uh, th- there was lots of business influence as well in terms of lobbying. And I, I felt very strongly that I needed to find a political home where there could be balance, where, you know, we could be looking at the big issues of the day, building business, looking after people in society, tackling the big issues of the day. And even then it was the environment, and it still is, of course. We'll talk about that that more later. Uh, and I was approached to um, join the party, and I joined. And I think people realised um, that I, I am extremely passionate about uh, the kind of work that we're talking about and they suggested that I, I get a platform um, and that platform happened to be Henley so I stood in the Henley by-election uh, when Boris Johnson stood down oh. um, to to go to um, become London mayor and it was very interesting in his first sort of six weeks um, in office um, I think um, he he had to come back to Henley uh, because, although I say it myself, other people said it, that that what I was presenting was actually really starting to swing the actual town of Henley. People were getting very interested in what I was saying. Uh, So um, they brought Boris back to um, fight me. Um, So when I was around the corner in pubs talking to people, he was running around the other corner um, you know, doing his thing. And it was quite interesting. I, I, I don't know why, but I saw Nigel Farage there. Nigel Farage was around that campaign, um, and I saw him around those sort of people. Very interesting. Um, And I think I saw some seeds there of something changing. Uh, The Lib Dems rose shortly after that, as you know, and we ended up in coalition. Um, So I I was proud of the part that I played in that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I stood in um, the uh, Worcester election in 2017 and 
um, I felt that this time round I had to stand again mm. because you know the problems that we're now facing are so serious. And you know I talked earlier about balance. I uh, I really felt as though there was no balance anymore. Um, and Julia's just pointed out, I've got my wife with me now, that um, one of the things I felt strongly about in terms of standing in Worcester is that I'm from the city and yeah. uh, spent my childhood there, so I really know the place inside out. And then getting back to 2017, you stood, as you rightfully said, but it became a very blue versus red. A lot of the smaller parties, and I don't mean any disrespect by that, yeah. lost a lot of their vote share because everyone either went blue or they went red. Yeah, yeah, And, and yet uh, since yeah. then, we've seen the complete reversal and people are drifting away from the two-party politics. What do you put that down to? Well, I mean, you know, obviously there's, there's been uh, the last three years of paralysis that we've faced. Uh, we had the advisory referendum. Um, the um, impact, I think, that that has had is it's left people um, lost. Uh, you know, you've, you, the, the country is literally split down the middle on, on the issue. Uh, so the, the, there's paralysis there. And it's quite interesting what you're saying, because I think unless we have some kind of major political shift, that paralysis will continue. So um, it's going to be interesting later in the interview to talk about you know ideas I've got for Worcester and how we can um, break through that paralysis. But I think that's the reason. You know, you, you know, people are drifting away from the main parties because they don't trust the political system anymore. And I think um, Labour um, and, and especially the Conservatives have really let people down. And in fact, we're seeing that, um, you know, from within um, the Conservative Party itself. The, there's an internecine war raging, um, and it's raging because uh, basically the party's been hijacked by the hard right. Uh, now, one of the first political actions I ever got involved with was joining the anti-Nazi league because I'm so opposed to um, the rise of fascism for, for the obvious reasons. Um, you know, our, our history in the 20th century tells us to be careful, tells us to be aware um, of the rise of fascism. So, so massively motivated around this now, even at my age. And getting towards the party both locally and nationally, I mean, after the coalition, the Lib Dems we're facing the abyss. Mm -hmm. And yet, for some reason, people are now drifting back. And it's unheard of. Once a party's heading towards the cliff edge, they usually go flying over the edge. Yeah. And uh, yet people are now coming back and listening to the Lib Dems again. And what, what do you put that down to, both locally and nationally? I, th I think at a local level, you know, there's no doubt about it, our membership has, has gone through the roof, you know. We've, we've got volunteers coming in now and, and people are really interested and, and, and they want to get involved. And I would put that down to the fact that we are offering a new vision. We're definitely offering um, the people of Britain um, a route out of, um, out of the paralysis. Um, I would put down the, 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 the shift that you're alluding to, to the people, people looking for a new political home um, from the conservatives' perspective. As I say, they've shifted to the hard right, and there are many really good, decent conservative people that are very unhappy with that. They're unhappy with the way Boris Johnson, for example, presents himself. Um, he, he's, he's seen in many quarters as been, uh, well, to be charitable, disingenuous. Um, he's seen in some quarters uncharitably, perhaps, as um, an absolute liar. Um, people are very worried about that. You know, if we think about future trade deals, for example, um, that we're starting to try to enter into at the moment, uh, the situation that we have is, is countries don't, other countries are actually saying they're not sure whether they can trust the UK in a trade deal. Now, 
People have seen Boris Johnson really undermine our country. They've seen the hard right of the Conservative Party undermine our country. And that, in my view, is where the drift is coming from. The drift is coming back to sensible politics that is going to impact at a very personal level, a local level, and a national level. How has he undermined the country? Well, because he's, he's lying for a start off. He's misleading people. Um, the, the, the idea, for example, that um, Operation Yellowhammer, um, you know, you know let's, let's just have a look at that. Um, Operation Yellowhammer is the operation that is uh, designed to prepare us uh, for uh, Brexit and, and specifically now a no-deal Brexit. Um, there, there were um, massive efforts to um, hide uh, the content of the Operation Yellow Hammer paper. Um, we know for a fact that um, in that paper uh, there are uh, concerns about food shortages. Uh, there are concerns, um, and whistleblowers have read this out to me personally. Um, we um, know that there are going to be um, really important um, medicine shortages. Uh, and all, all this has been covered up by the Conservatives. So, so this is an example of where the drift comes from. People no longer trust the hard right of the Conservative Party. And of course, we've just seen, well, we, we've just seen the reaction now to people engaging in democracy. Uh, what does Dominic Cumming and Boris Johnson do? He removes them from office. Now, you know, my opponent in, in Worcester, um, I'm absolutely stunned at his behaviour. I mean, he's clearly just behaving um, in, in a way that will hopefully for him ensure his seat, but, you know, by saying what he thinks people want to hear. Um, but he's a- absolutely towing the party line. I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but, you know, it's got to be gloves off. He's weak and spineless. He's not standing up like some of the great grandees of the Conservative Party to the behaviour of Boris Johnson. Now, people in the UK, people in Worcester, people are not stupid. They can see this behaviour. They can see the impact it's having. So, again, that is why people are coming back to sensible politics. And the Liberal Democrats are really producing some fantastic uh, manifesto at the moment and vision for the country. But their vision for the country seems to be, we want to get rid of Brexit. How does that square with 17.4 million people who voted for Brexit? Well, do you want their votes, or? Well, I think I think the re- the, the reality uh, that we have to face is that the um, electorate, and in fact the population, is over sixty million, as you, as you yeah. well know. So um, the proportion of people that you're talking about who voted in an advisory referendum. Um, in um, 2016, now three years ago, they have started, everybody has started to see the reality of the impact of the referendum and the, the, the inability of the country, even at parliamentary level, to um, come to a solution and come to a conclusion. People have seen that. Now, the Liberal Democrat position has been uh, clear really from day one that, OK, we respect the result of the referendum. That has come through. That has happened. But now let's see how it goes. And as every minute of the clock has ticked, um, our view about having a people's vote on final say um, is it, it, it's absolutely crucial. It's come true. So what I'm saying to people is that um, Parliament has failed to come to an agreement. Um, Therefore, it's now down to you as an individual voter to come back responsibly 
fully informed and make an informed decision. That's why I think a people's vote, or whatever you want to call it, a second um, vote, should should happen. It's vital that people take responsibility. So, so what I'm saying to those 17.4 million people is um, total respect for your opinion on that day in 2016. But now look at the mess, take responsibility, come back and vote again. But there's a bit of a change even now, because what Boris Johnson has done is he's moved away from the result of the referendum, and now he is trying to deliver. He is absolutely trying to deliver a no-deal Brexit. Now, that is not what people voted for, so there is no disrespect to 17.4 million people. I say, come back to the table. If we end up with a situation where we still say, right, even with everything we know, we want to come out, that has to be respected. And indeed, the vision that I've got for Worcester absolutely respects that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that in more detail later on. But, you know, in my view, there are ways of moving forward, whether we're in or out of Europe. Now, from a personal perspective, if we end up staying in Europe, here's what I think. I think the lack of statesman-like um, negotiating um, that we've always had in the UK, it has not existed. I mean, even when David Cameron was there, he did not pull it off. Theresa May certainly did not pull it off. And I think it's because of an intransigence from our side that we really need to think about. We really need to think about how we as individuals function in society. We need to think about how that translates into local action, how that affects the country and indeed our, our, our continental neighbours. Why is it important? Because we have to work together. We have to work together. We're up against um, incredibly powerful economies emerging. India, China has emerged powerfully. And what we're doing is we're moving away from a fantastic deal with 500 billion customers on the doorstep into a potential relationship with Donald Trump. Now, entering into a relationship with Donald Trump, I think, is, is, is the most stupid and most short-sighted thing in the world we can do unless some of us have got vested interests in that. And I point the finger fairly and squarely at the Conservative Party for this. There are people in the Conservative Party with enormous interests but, in, in bringing Donald Trump and the United States of America to the table. And, you know, when they say, oh, the NHS is not at risk, Donald Trump wants the NHS. I do not believe Boris Johnson, and I do not believe Robin Walker. But he's not, he may not be president. Uh, it, it's irrelevant. You know, why are we turning our back on, you know, if I was negotiating, I would be looking at the best of both worlds. I'd be looking at a strong and balanced relationship with Europe, a strong and balanced relationship with the United States. How on earth can we call our current politicians statesmen when they're trashing relationships with neighbours? It's just not on. It's ridiculous. But we're 13 months away from a presidential election in the United States. Yeah. Boris, Donald Trump may not be president. 13 years from now, 13 months from now. Right, OK. Trade deals take a decade to negotiate. Uh, yes. We may not be ever ne need to negotiate with Donald Trump. Well, I'll come back to the trade deals taking 10 years to negotiate because th 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 there's another issue there. But the fact is that Donald Trump is there and he has moved politics to the right in the United States. Now, how far that's going to come back in the next election, if at all, and it might even move further right, says to me we cannot afford to be inactive. 
we have to hold on to the fantastic uh, relationship we've got um, with the European Union, and we have to look at new relationships in other parts of the world, Is it including the United States. Is it fantastic? Ask your farmers that locally when we have a no-deal Brexit and you've got 30-plus percent tariffs going on to goods in this country and they can't get a look-in. Ask farmers that question. Yes. I'm thought, talking more politically, is it fantastic? You know, are we... Are we this big influence in Brussels? Not now, no. We were. We used to be um, one of the most powerful voices in Brussels. But we're not now. And we're not now because of the behaviour of our politicians and because they have been incapable of um, negotiating um, a, a... I'm not even going to talk about a deal. They have found it impossible uh, to negotiate their way out of the problems that we have with Europe and the problems that we see um, with the European project. I'm not saying for a minute it's perfect. There's a lot wrong with it. and There's a lot of things that need to be put right. But to turn our back on it and to turn our back on 500 million customers, I think is very short-sighted. To turn to America uh, for a trade deal is laced with a whole range of problems. Donald Trump is one of them, um, but there are other problems in terms of uh, the quality of food that will come out of the United States and flood the country. You know, we hear Jacob Rees-Mogg promising cheaper food. Um, We also hear the head of the Agricultural Union in um, the United States saying, well, we expect our food to be able to come over, even chlorinated chicken, because the um, federal services say the food is safe. Well, to me, all that is going to do is undermine our farmers. So, you know, if you say, was it good in Europe? I would say um, absolutely yes. Um, And let's talk to farmers in 12 months' time and ask their view if we crash out without a deal. Last point on Brexit, because I don't think we we should devote all the interview to it, but two things I want to pick you up on. You keep calling it an advisory referendum. The government brochure that was sent to every household in this country said the government will respect the vote, whatever you decide. Well, it was still advisory, but and the government but then, have a right to say that. That's fine. But something came through the door saying the government will respect whatever you decide. Yeah, well, the thing is, as this is... So the, if people have voted, you yeah. can see the anger from their side because they were told by their government, whatever you vote for, we'll do. OK, so, I mean, we've, we've really got to drill down in relation to what this vote was about and how it happened. Um, and I think it's, it, it's straightforward. People were given a set of um, perspectives and points of view from both sides. We're now three years on, and we can see very clearly that um, some of those perspectives were either inaccurate or downright lies. Okay, that is a political campaign, and we all know in political campaigns some things can get said that aren't completely accurate, okay? So I'm not pointing any fingers there. I'm just saying that's the reality. We've got to the point now where um, we're three years down the line. We are much more informed. And and this has got to be my last point on this. The country is split 50-50. It's why there is the paralysis in Parliament, because our elected representatives are representing the people. We've got to go back now to the people so that they can make an informed decision. That's why I think that there has to be a people's vote to help us through the, 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 the issue.
but the first the result of the first vote was never enacted. So you want another vote even before the result of the first one was enacted. I think the reasons that I'm saying uh, we need another vote are are very important. That people have now had time to um, think about what's what the implications of uh, the last three years are. And they are now in a position where they can make a much more informed choice. Um, even more so now, I, I'd multiply that by 100 now, because Donald, uh, not Donald Trump, I'm confusing the two, surprise, surprise, <laughs> Boris Johnson, <laughs> Boris Johnson is now trying to take us out without no deal, putting our food security at risk, putting the most vulnerable at risk, putting our broad security at risk, our relationships at risk. It's now time for people to look again, in my perspective, and have a people's vote. I personally would like to see people vote again and take responsibility for what's about to happen to the country. With three years down the line, they need, people need to reflect again and then make an informed decision. Now, if that decision is, right, OK, we're three years down the line, we know exactly what the situation is now, this is what we want to do, then there's no two ways about it. That is what has got to be done. From my perspective as a parliamentary candidate for Worcester, I'm not phased by that at all. We've just got to get on now with getting back to our domestic agenda and putting this country back on the map, locally, nationally and globally. Here, here, I would actually say. So turning domestically, um, Worcester, as you look at it, yep. what's it got going for it and what is the challenges facing it in the years ahead? I think Worcester is... Well, from a personal perspective, it, it, it's just completely stunning. I mean, I feel so rooted when I'm there. Uh, the history of Worcester is just incredible. I mean, it, it's so exciting, actually, to be involved in politics right now in Worcester because, of course, Worcester is one of the places where the great battles uh, for democracy uh, was played out. And I, I think, um, well, let's hope it doesn't get to that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, you know, the great battle for democracy has been played out again. It's an absolutely beautiful city. I can remember um, as a child in Gregory Mill Bank sitting playing by the canal and a family... Uh, turned up on their boats and they were moving goods down to uh, Worcester Porcelain and, and Diglas. And I was absolutely entranced. And, and from that day, um, you know, I've, I've just been so um, devoted um, and so loved Worcester. My work has taken me all over the uh, world. So, you know, I haven't always been able to be there and spend my whole life there. Um, but, you know, to come back to Worcester with the perspectives I've got and the experience I've got over, over the last 10 years has just been fantastic. We've got um, the, the, the beautiful cathedral, the river, the, the, the natural resources are quite incredible. And, we, you know, when I talk to people about the future of Worcester um, and I think about the vision that um, has been put together from listening to people's concerns and aspirations in the city and I think about the, the history of the city, um, my, my, my passion, if you like, for, for, for the vision is... is, is um, it, it, it's so... Uh, what's the word? It's so... This is one of the bits that you can... <laughs> um, the word is... My passion for the city is... is so powerful... I'm so enthusiastic about its future because of the history and because of the natural resources of the place. And the other thing is about the people of Worcester, 
Like the sense of humour is absolutely brilliant. You know, when you when you drop down from the Birmingham plateau and you you start to you start to get that kind of blend of the it's almost like the blend of the sort of Midlands and the South. It ju- it just mm. starts to happen in Worcester, and I think that gives it you know something you know re- re- really special. Um, and of course, the music scene there over the years has always been amazing. Um, I, I was talking to a friend recently and um, remembering the day I went to see Mott the Hoople at the Gaumont, <laughs> and um, uh, they were a great pl- band. They were I remember them singing the song All the Young Dudes mm, by David yeah. Bowie. That was the reason I went to see them. Uh, but the support band was uh, a band that were just stunning. We were all in the, the bar. I'm not sure I should have been at that age, but uh, we, we were all standing in the bar and we could hear this incredible music and we all went rushing in to see what this was all about. And there was Freddie Mercury on stage, the support band from What the Hoople. Um, Queen in Worcester. in Worcester playing the Seven Seas of Rye. It's when there was the support band on the Motley Hoople tour. Now the thing is, it's interesting that for, for, from my perspective, because you know, my all my time in Worcester, I've all I'm always looking out for the local bands. Um, I'm always in the pubs listening to uh, the local bands that are emerging. Some of the stunning talent I've come across in the Mars Bar, for example, um, just incredible. Uh, local bands that emerge and go on to do really great things. So, I mean, Worcester's Worcester's great. You know, the university, uh, the new arts centre that's opened, um, you know, the shopping now and the festivals. It's just a great city. And I think, you know, I would add that Worcester's got something that is really fundamental that we can build on, and that's its natural resources. And when the Liberal Democrat um, vision emerges in the next election, um, we are going to be looking at those natural resources and looking at how we can tackle um, some of the most complex problems around environment, Mm. some of the most difficult problems that the city faces around pollution, um, particularly in places like... uh, Droitwich Road, Normsley Road, the um, you know the traffic build up during uh, the day. Um, how do we deal with that? How do we tackle that? How do we? Ah, well, that will be in the vision. Uh, so you know we're going to be we'll, we'll be uh, releasing that within the next week or so. Um, but um, one of the ways that we tackle this is that we have to create the link between the needs of business between now and twenty fifty. The uh, needs of uh, well, in fact, not the needs, the the environmental imperative, the actions that we um, as politicians have to lead on if we're going to save the planet, um, and blending that with the needs of our um, most vulnerable, including our children and young people. So, um, one of the things that I'm, we're definitely looking at is this: the government, um, whoever the government is. Um, is going to be coming out of austerity measures. Uh, we're seeing Boris at the moment splashing the cash. And he's splashing the cash because there is the opportunity now um, to borrow again uh, because the deficit has been reduced, etc., etc. There is the opportunity now to really get funding back into our public services, um, to get uh, funding back into uh, business development. Um, and I'm, I'm listening quite carefully to what the different parties are announcing. But 
in terms of the environmental imperative, there needs to be something very different that happens and there needs to be new money that comes in to build our business, to build our society, to really develop the economy and at the same time protect the environment. Now, our vision will look at that. I'm very business orientated, but I do not ignore the most impoverished in our society. I do not um, ignore the needs of children, young people and families. We're going to be looking long and hard at that. We know whichever part Parties in power, post-austerity, money's going to come into the city. Um, we've seen Robin Walker talking about, you know, more money for education. Well, about time. Um, we're going to be going beyond that. So I'm looking forward to announcing that. How much are you going to go beyond? A lot. We're going to work very hard and we're going to put together an, a, a strong partnership that is going to be exploring... Um, different ways of funding some of the most important aspects of uh, what Worcester needs to take it to, to, toward 2050. And if you were elected, um, would you make any pledges uh, to Worcester people in your first term of office? Or Well, w- one of the pledges is to say that we will work um, as hard as we can in partnership with everybody across the city to um, deliver on the vision, that part of the vision that I've talked about. I think the other thing that we um, are going to do is we're going to launch um, the idea, I, I will go through this with you now, we're going to launch the idea of what we call the Worcester Parliament. And we, I'll, I'll tell you about this because we started to touch on it uh, two years ago in the last election. Um, but basically, I, I feel that democracy is broken and We've got really serious issues and we need to rebuild. We need to um, really be listening to each other. We need to be building trust, respect and relationships across the divide. I mentioned the charity work that we did earlier and we um, developed over 20, 25 years processes of of listening to people and identifying um, the concerns and aspirations and identifying people that would... Um, take action to, to, to change things. The Worcester Parliament is going to be all about a Member of Parliament being held to account by the community and other politicians as well being held to account by community. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to sit in front of people and just allow them to throw things at us. We're going to set up a, a, a local parliamentary system, which I think is really important and appropriate in Worcester, We're going to set up a a parliamentary system where people can come in once every three months. They can engage in exercises that explore um, what they love about the city, what we can build on, what their concerns are, the things that need sorting out, what their vision is, what action they can take. And the quid pro quo then is what action I can take as a member of parliament and our councillors can take to actually really make sure that we've been accountable and meeting the needs of people in the community. Democracy, these are not words, democracy needs to be reinvented, and that is one of the things that I will do if I become a Member of Parliament, and I pledge to do that today. Well, that's a nice exclusive for the Worcester Observer podcast there as well. I guess one th- the negative side, in having subbed my letters page over and over again for the last three years, people are going to listen to that and go... Well, why are you any different to that? We've heard all the same. We've heard all the same things before. Why are you any different? You've you've never heard before that in the faithful city of Worcester, we are going to set up a parliament where politicians will be directly accountable to the people of the city. 
Um, I've spoken to some people in the city over the last couple of years that are going to help us to do this and support us to do this. And these are people that are absolutely rooted in the community um, in the buildings they manage without giving anything away (laughs) at this point. (laughs) Do you feel the people of Worcester have been listened to? Um, Over what period of time? The last 10 years? I think that if if we look across the political landscape completely, I would say people have not been listened to at all. I think that politicians, all, all of us, all politicians, all political parties have pre- presented manifestos and those manifestos have been, you know, to be fair to everybody, have been as good as they can be. Um, and then the day-to-day grind of politics has kicked in. Um, when members of parliament, for example, have gone off to uh, um, Westminster, uh, they have been faced with um, a barrage of uh, party lobbyists, um, the disciplinarians with the party that you know are going to keep everybody on party line. Um, so I think right across the board, communities have not been listened to. So now we've been doing this work, as you're picking up, for a long, long time. And one of the things that I have um, felt for many years is that we need to engage and develop a community conversation. Now, that sounds a little bit woolly, but let me tell you, it's not woolly. When we held a community conversation uh, in different parts of the country, and I'm talking about hundreds of different parts Mm. of the country in the 90s, um, some of the issues that we heard were absolutely horrendous. And charities were founded as a result of it. And people emerged as as a result of it politically to do something about massive issues. I'm I'm not going to go into any detail now. We'll just get sidetracked. But I'm, I'm talking about the issues that really impact on people's lives. Um, Now, what we saw when we were doing that work was people were really listened to. We need that to roll out, and we can't think of anywhere better, and I personally, as a parliamentary candidate, can't think of anywhere better to do that than in the faithful city of Worcester, where the battles for democracy have taken place. I think we need to stop moaning and get on. Whatever's going to happen with Brexit, we need to get on. But when we get on, let's do it differently. Let's start with a clean slate. Let's listen. Let's, and, and when I say listen, I'm not talking about us listening, we go off and do something. Let's listen together. Let's solve the problems of Worcester together. That's going to be at the heart of our vision, as well as the other things that I've alluded to. And turning to the Lib Dems nationally, we mentioned the party was facing the abyss and now it's come back. And it, it seems now the, the highway is as clear as day now and... There's no end to the, what the party can achieve. I, I think uh, in politics, um, the highway is never clear. I, I, <laughs> I think the one, the one thing I would say is everything I've just said to you is going to put me into quite an interesting situation and, and position because what I'm saying to you is my priority is Worcester, the people of Worcester, and Worcester between now and 2050. Mm. That's, that is my ambition. If we start to talk about the party, the, the party, the, the Liberal Democrat Party, um, will, I think, broadly agree with what I'm doing, um, and I think that they will support what I'm doing. 
what's going to happen for the party, from my perspective, is that if we can show that this works in Worcester, I think it could roll out right across the country. And that would be my kind of ambition nationally. What's the future of the party? They're coming back from the abyss. Well, if they're going to come back from the abyss, there's got to be a really different solution to the problems that we're facing. Um, And this is what I'm proposing to explore in Worcester. It's not just a bright idea. I'm 61 years old. It comes out of years and years of experience and absolute fear and concern for my grandchildren. And there's quite a few of them. So, you know, I I just know deep down that whilst the Conservatives have presented people with the black and white of in or out, this gang, that gang, I think they are completely missing the point. I think the work that I'm talking about is really deep. We need five or ten years to really make a difference. And as I've said to you before, in a way, for me, it won't matter which party's in power. If I get in as an MP in Worcester, I'm going to do this in Worcester. Will it affect funding? I don't think it will because, as I say, post-austerity, all the parties are going to be piling money into all the things Robin Walker's talking about now. What I intend to fight to do is different. And in closing, quite simply, why should the people of Worcester vote for you? I think for all the reasons that I've said, that um, I'm passionate, I've got a vision, I'm not going to be a nodding dog in Westminster, I'm not going to allow lobbyists to impact on me and palm my, whatever the word is, palm with silver. (laughs) This is about Worcester. You know, as far as I'm concerned, if I can spend the next five to ten years creating a better future for the city, putting Worcester on the map as the the business sustainable centre in this continent... I, I, I've got a, a fantastic vision for Worcester because I think Worcester's capable of it. And I am talking to people that are talking about helping me to do that. And they're not necessarily politically aligned. These are people that want to do something different and they can definitely help us and they're interested in Worcester. That's what I will bring to the party. Stephen Kearney, thank you so much for being on the Worcester Observer podcast. And that is it from us for this week. We'll be back same time, same place next week. More politics? Don't rule it out. Until then, I've been your host, Rob George. Join us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and send me an email, editor at worcesterobserver.co.uk. But until then, I think we're done here. Bye-bye. (laughs) 